Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 104. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Today we're going to talk about false teaching. We're only going to look at two verses. Uh, if you got your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And I'll go ahead and read those for you. Uh, New King James Version. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the laws of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. All right, let's talk about false teaching. You know, Jesus prophesied that there would be false teachers that would come. The apostles mentioned false teachers a lot, and they warn the body of Christ not to welcome them and not to take the words inside their heart. Because, you know, false teaching is the devil's strategy to create a war from within the church. And uh, in my brief lifetime, I've seen different seasons of false teaching. And, you know, normally it's not that someone comes down teaching that, um, you know, there's an alien named Zalator and he's going to bring Jesus to some, you know, it's not some wacky, crazy sounding thing. Although I'm not saying there's not those guys out there. But typically, the false teaching that really rocks the church, it's an overemphasis of something that's um, it's actually true, but it's true in proportion. And it's true as long as you keep it in context. But the false teacher blows it up out of context and out of all the um, original importance that it has and makes it into something a lot bigger or smaller than it should be. Now, notice that these teachers, um, well, I guess I should say, in my lifetime, I've seen um, the faith teaching in the 70s and 80s, the faith teaching taken so far outside of anything that the Bible ever taught about faith, so that it became taught as a magic power, always about money and getting yourself success because you had God's speech ability and you can make money come to you, and it was just so selfish. Uh, and a lot of uh, evangelists taught the people to be selfish, self-centered, and made themselves millions and millions of dollars doing it because in the end, it's always about the money. Uh, there's some kind of money angle to it. With these brothers, uh, I shouldn't call them brothers, these false teachers that came in, it, notice that they came from Judea. That was the heart of conservative Jewish culture. Uh, they came from the, the area around Jerusalem, and that's where they were from. They weren't disciples. Uh, they weren't made disciples by Christ. They were the disciples of rabbis who had now joined the Christian movement, and they were, they were trying to bring Christ into alignment with their old ways of thinking rather than just accepting the radical Jesus idea of the kingdom of God and all that he taught in that kingdom teaching. They just want to stay with their old Jewish teachings and somehow fit Jesus into it. The scripture tells us that many who were priests became obedient to the faith after the day of Pentecost, 
and also that we had uh, whole groups within Christianity that had come from the Pharisees. And so uh, that's who these guys come from. Uh, They were from Judea. And that's kind of interesting, too, because in my experience, false teaching tends to come from a geographic place. You know, there's a city. uh, And, you know, God bless all the wonderful things that have come out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, but there's been a lot of crazy stuff that also came out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there's some other cities like that, that they just become sort of a seedbed. And I think part of it is it's not that there's, a, there's something about that geographical place, but there, turn, there uh, tends to become a social circle of, of friends. They become friends, and they create, and they fund, and they encourage certain kinds of teaching, and they become you know, like a, a teaching band and they all kind of pile on about this thing, and they encourage and move each other, uh, move each other along, and that's what happened here. It wasn't that a man came with a false teaching. It was a band of people. They were from Judea. Now these guys are meddlers. You know, they don't come with divine anointing. They don't come with God's authority. They're not fathers to the people. They are not church planters. They're not people who have ever started anything, as far as we can tell. They don't appear to have a a burden for the harvest. They don't seem to love the lost. They don't seem to care about anything. Uh, You know, they're meddlers. They just want to get into other people's work and invade the works of others, especially while those people are away from home. You know, you go away and Paul has this happen to him in Galatians. It's the same kind of group that comes into Galatia, and as soon as Paul moves on, from Galatia to plant churches in other places, uh, here come these guys right behind him to bring this teaching uh, without circumcision and following the complete law of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, the blood of Jesus is not enough to save you. The death of Jesus on the cross is not enough to save you. It has to be first you become a Jew. Culturally and completely, you become a Jew. Then you follow the laws of Moses And only under those circumstances does the salvation that Jesus brought us apply to your life. So they have, you know, that's their doctrine. That's what they've come in to do. So um, these guys somehow flew under James's authority, and they claimed to have authority from James, and they claimed to have authority from the Jerusalem leadership. And Paul and Barnabas did a very exemplary job. I mean, they. They confronted them publicly uh, on the stage, not quietly off to the side, because false teachers teach in public. And, um, you know, there are things we can all learn, and sometimes we all have emphases that we get a little off track, and I think it's, it's usually best handled if we're a little out of bounds um, for a brother to pull us aside and say, okay, let's talk about this what looks like your doctrine isn't completely lined up with the Scripture. But in the case of these guys, they, are, they have come to do combat against the faith of this church. And Paul and Barnabas are not willing to just out of politeness let this slide. It's a huge doctrinal issue, and they confront them publicly. Now, uh, you know, this, uh, this church in Antioch, was not like it's not like it had a big church building. Christians didn't have church buildings, as we've said before, for three hundred years. They did have uh, houses among themselves, Christians that, and those who had larger houses or areas underneath their house that you know might could be used for a variety of things. Whatever made a big spot, you know, that they could get into and 
and have meetings, they would. So we're talking about house-to-house ministry, and these guys are moving house-to-house, and they're doing what they can to sow their seed uh, and fight against the good doctrine. Um, It's interesting to me, well, let me me just give you a little example. I had a, a teacher named Steve Land when I was in seminary, and he, as a pastor, had what I think is a really great pastoral habit. He said that uh, sometimes he would be preaching on something, and everybody was, you know, with him, amen, amen. And he, he said sometimes, just to, to test him a bit, I would get a little bit off base with my doctrine and say amen, and then, you know, he could get most of them to, yes, you know, yes, pastor, amen. And he said, then I'd go a little farther from truth and a little farther from truth, and at the end, I'd just keep saying amen, and he said, you know, Eventually, you know, it would get less and less people going with me. And finally, he said, I would just stop and say, why in the world did you say amen? My doctrine was wrong. You knew it was wrong, didn't you? And, you know, they're like nodding. So he said, you know, false teachers are real. And you can't, amen means, you know, I'm with you. This is the truth. So we need to stand against false teaching. And um, so Paul and Barnabas say, all right, this is beyond us. You guys claim to have authority from the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church, Paul recognized that the Jerusalem brothers uh, did have authority because they were closer to Jesus in his, in his lifetime of ministry. Many of them knew Jesus personally, and so they would be closer to Christ, and thus they'd be closer to his doctrinal roots. And so they ran this group out of their church, and said, all right, we're calling for a council of elders in Jerusalem to clarify the teaching of Jesus Christ on this subject. And by the way, this, this debate is not over. You know, we are still battling. We've been battling legalism in the church for the last 2,000 years. And in particular, the ongoing battle about the Jewish roots of Christianity and the role about the Old Testament and Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament believer. That's not over with. I mean, a Seventh-day Adventist group is entirely built on that one doctrinal issue, and they're not the only one. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes what started happening in churches with a lot more detail. Uh, Paul calls, calls these guys who showed up in his church um, pseudo-Adelphoi. Pseudo means false Adelphoi brothers, False brothers. They're not true brothers, he said. They're fake brothers. They're counterfeit brothers. They pretend to be men in Christ, but really they're not. Uh, They're not in Christ. They don't honor Christ and the work of Christ. And he said their goal, Galatians chapter 2, you can read it, their goal was to bring God's new free children, those who had entered the kingdom of God and who, who had experienced the liberty that is, in that kingdom, they wanted to bring God's children into bondage. And we need to ponder that word bondage, you know, bound, uh, enslaved, tied up, put in chains, because that's what the devil wants to do. And that's what legalism does to you. It takes away your freedom. It takes away the liberty that Jesus came to bring you, and it makes you walk that tightrope where you feel like your work is the basis of your salvation. And, you know, you may be listening to me right now, and doctrinally, you know, you're exactly right, but really in your heart, you still, you live under so much condemnation. I know that's happened to me, and 
in different stages in my life and seasons in my life as a Christian, you know, where you you know in your head that it's all on Christ, but you you know you know your life's not right. It's not perfect, at least. And you see your mistakes and you see your faults and you you condemn yourself. And and it's terrible when your church is built on condemnation, and you've got leaders who rule through condemnation. And if you're in a legalistic church, you just need to get out of it. You know, vote with your feet. Just move. And they're going to say bad things about you. But the whole thing about this this bondage is that, you know, Paul said in, in Galatians 2.11, it's a bondage and it starts to invade the fellowship, the free fellowship of Christians, the fellowship of free Christians, liberated people in Antioch. And Paul said, you know, this group, they're conservative, but they're powerful. And they're powerful in ripping Old Testament scriptures out and using them. They're powerful because of their certainty, because of their unyielding rigidity, because they claim to represent the truth of God. And, you know, they would cast dispersion on Paul's new, quote, new doctrine about freedom from the ceremonial law and from food laws, not from the moral law of the Old Testament. And, but most of all, these people used judgmental scorn and the threat of making you an outcast from your lifetime of friends and brothers. Um, you know, when you're talking about all of those who ministered among Gentile churches, you're talking about Peter and Paul and Barnabas and a lot of these other brothers, they're all Jews. You know, it was 100% Jewish leadership, and they were Jews who were the evangelists, and they were Jews who were the teachers. And this group came with that, you know, holding this over your head. You know, if you don't line up with Moses, you are going to be out of fellowship with Israel and out of fellowship with your own family, and we will make sure that people know what a false teacher you are. And it affected, Paul says it even affected Peter that Peter for a time pulled back and began to eat his meals in a separate, uh, at a separate place, I guess stayed in the room with him. I don't know. He didn't describe exactly what he did, except to say he separated himself physically from Gentiles while they ate because that's, uh, that's how they viewed holiness. You know, it was physical. If, um, if I touch a Gentile, I'm unclean. Even worse, if I eat food with a Gentile, it goes inside me and it makes me unclean. And then if you touch me, I'm a Jew, but you touch me, you're unclean. You didn't know it, but you're unclean because I touched a Gentile. And if someone touches you, they're unclean because this uncleanness goes for three levels before it stops. And, you know, Jesus clearly taught about this. He said, there is nothing that goes into your body that can defile you. And so, um, it, but it affected it. It frightened Peter. And Peter would have had the exact same sentiment as these teachers, probably, if not for his own dream about unclean food and his experience with Cornelius. And, you know, Peter had, had himself suffered attack from the same group of Jerusalem conservatives many years before, um, after he brought the gospel to Cornelius because he went into his house and ate food with him. That was what they took him to task over. So he had suffered from this. And, um, you know, now his early, Peter has had a really good season as a leader, about 15 years of leadership, but that early cowardice returns and he begins to um, do things out of fear of man. And Paul calls him on it. He calls him in front of everybody. Paul says even Barnabas was somehow affected by this. And I wish we had a little more detail on it because, 
you know, in the in the Acts version of this story, Barnabas is is fighting right along with Paul. So I don't know if maybe Barnabas wavered a bit, and when Paul called uh, Peter's attention and Barnabas's attention to the hypocrisy of what they were doing, um, it, you know, it woke them it woke them both up uh, because certainly by the time they get to Jerusalem, Peter is definitely standing with Paul, uh, and, and Barnabas is too. You know, legalism is just so powerful. It's got. It's just this, you, know, you know what it is? It's the fear of rejection. It's the fear of rejection from your group. And I grew up in a, a Pentecostalism that was beautiful in many ways, and I, I have to say it was beautiful in so many ways. But there was also a very clear strain of legalism. And, and so many people in our church, you know, not, not getting their ears pierced, uh, totally not because they had a conviction about ears piercing. 100% because they might get kicked out of the church. Uh, they might hear their name called from the pulpit. They might, a lot of bad things can happen if you break a legalistic rule. I have an aunt that was kicked out as a teenager from the, com- the little Alabama community church. I mean, everyone in this church is an aunt, an uncle, us, you know, because we intermarry with all those neighbors, and it was the community church of family. And yet when she graduated high school, she bought the high school ring, put it on her finger and wore it. And for that, they held a church trial, kicked her out of the church, and she was out of church for, I guess, 20 years, uh, she and her husband. And she's like sweet, solid, loves Jesus, but kicked out of her church over wearing a high school ring. And that is just one of millions of cases like that that have gone on all over the world among people who love the Lord and who somehow get caught up in the hypocrisy, the play acting that legalism brings on you, the bondage of legalism. So, you know, once again, what what I'm seeing in this passage is the need for occasional conflict in order to keep things on course. Paul and Barnabas didn't sit there silently. They didn't say, oh, gee, you know, I, I hope they don't tell on me, uh, you know, to James and the brothers in Jerusalem. They stood up and fought, and they fought out loud. They fought so huge in public, they never backed down because this was the core doctrine of salvation. Am I saved by my works or by the blood of Jesus? There's no middle ground because if by any human effort I can save myself then Christ died for nothing. So either his blood erases my defilement or not. You know? And so Paul is determined to have this, uh, this truth cast in stone in Jerusalem. What do we believe about salvation and defilement? How do we get defilement off of us? By keeping the law or by the blood of Jesus? My friend, if you struggle against the bondage of sin, Christ is the cure. And if you struggle against the bondage of legalism, Christ is still the cure. And if you struggle against fear of being judged by others, Christ is the cure. Know what Jesus Christ has done for you and know who you are in Christ. And if your heart condemns you, tell it to yourself every day. I am a man or a woman in Christ. I am holy. I am righteous. I am forgiven. The blood of Jesus makes me clean. What I did yesterday does not defile me. The blood of Jesus washes my sin away. I am repenting of my sin, and I am walking in the new life, and Jesus is my salvation. You just 
indoctrinate yourself. Stand fast in your liberty in Christ. But also, let me say, if you're ever present when someone starts to bring this legalistic bondage into a circle of Christians, have the guts to stand up and push back. You know, if, I guarantee you, if enough people would push back in legalistic churches, you'd have one of two things would happen. It would purify the church in one way or another. You know, either others will stand with you and will shut uh, that corruption down and get it out of the church, or they'll kindly ask you to find yourself another church. But uh, either way, you'll get yourself out from under the bondage of legalism. Uh, I just don't want to be under that anymore. And uh, thank God, I really believe I walk in liberty. And I love the freedom that I have in Jesus Christ. If, uh, if you want to talk to me about anything, just leave me a message, chuck at quinley.com. And I would love to start taking some questions at the end of the podcast. So if you'll go to quinley.com slash questions, there's a chance there for you to leave a question for me to, uh, to answer on the air. Um, if you enjoy the Thread Podcast and it's been helpful to you, please do two things for us. Number one, would you go to quinley.com slash love? And give us some love on Facebook. Mention the podcast and uh, what it means to you. Encourage your friends to, to come and tune in also. And number two, can you go to quinley.com slash iTunes and leave us a rating on the iTunes store. Really, really need that. All right, great. Well, I've enjoyed being with you, and thank you for hanging in here with me as we study the book of Acts and look for leadership lessons from the mighty men of God in the very earliest days of Christianity. God bless you and make you strong. That's all for this time on Thread. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Log on to quinley.com.